This Week in HPC by Intersect 360 Research. IBM and Google step up quantum race. And NVIDIA adds ODMs to hyperscale strategy. It's This Week in HPC. Hi, everyone. Thanks for listening into another episode of This Week in HPC with Intersect 360 Research, distributed in partnership with Top500.org. I'm Addison Snell, and that's Michael Feldman. Michael, This Week in HPC, you know, we've been talking on this podcast, I think, increasingly recently about quantum computing. And now we've got another update here as IBM and Google have made... Do we want to say a quantum leap? That sounds terrible. <laughs> a quantum step improvement forward in their quantum computing strategies. Yeah, definitely. And they sort of came on top of each other in uh, in late May, mid and late May. They both had pretty big announcements that uh, that they're both advancing rather rapidly in their in their goal to to quantum comp- supremacy. That's the the goal of basically building a universal quantum computer that can execute these quantum type algorithms much faster or faster than any conventional computer or supercomputer. And they seem to be well on the way. And we sort of noted that before, but uh, especially Google came out recently and said they're going to build a 49 qubit system before the end of this year. That's 2017, uh, which they think will be a quantum uh, supreme system. And then, of course, IBM has been working on this for a while. They said um, they've upped their, their five-qubit system that they had in-house on their cloud, and now they have a 17-qubit system all of a sudden and and a 16-qubit system available in the cloud where this five-qubit system was. So they've both made good progress, and it seems like these these bigger systems are going to come sooner rather than later now. Just to do a quick review from some of our previous announcements, we talk about these qubits, these quantum bits, and what makes them particularly powerful is the quantum concept of superposition, where each each qubit can be in multiple states at one time. And when we look forward to a universal quantum computing system, what we're looking at is that for every n qubits in a system, that system can theoretically explore a solution space of two to the n possibilities. So the idea isn't to compare it to uh, a system with that many bits or even that many processors, but but really that many uh, that many solutions that it can explore. And by the time we get up into the forties of bits. Uh, right around 47, 48 qubits is, is when you get to, that's about the largest space that uh, the current largest supercomputers might be able to explore. So for certain applications like in material sciences, for example, where you, or, or maybe protein folding, where you want to look at, there's a small number of inputs, there's a large solution space to explore, and then you're narrowing it down to fewer outputs. That's what these are, are looking for. And, and now we've got a, a really a race on. We've had D-Wave in there for a while, IBM, Google, and then we were talking about some other solutions recently as well. I mean, is this where we are? We've been talking about quantum computing for decades. It seems like it's happening now. We're going to have actual systems out there. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I think we will have systems fairly soon. Now, a caveat, even... even uh, John Martinez, who works on the Google team, sort of leads that that research, thinks, you know, by the time they have this 49-qubit system, although it'll 
they, they think will exhibit quantum supremacy, it won't be what people might call a, a highly usable system that are going to be working on real world problems. They, he thinks that's, that's years down the road from there, but it'll be an important milestone. And I have a feeling some useful things will, or some useful applications will be tried on these systems and they might get some, uh, some use out of them, especially from IBM standpoint, they're going to commercialize these systems as quickly as possible. They've talked about getting their 50 qubit system within the next few years, and they think they can uh, productize that uh, sort of in conjunction with that. And so I think they're thinking a little differently that they will have people doing real application work, uh, at least researchers, uh, within a very short time frame after, after they get these systems up and running. Yeah, my general experience with this has been that if if you really do build a better computer, someone will figure out how to program it and, and really make an advancement based on that. We're heading into ISC now in a couple of weeks in Frankfurt. There's even a session that D-Wave is part of called Quantum Annealing and its Applications for Simulation in Science and Industry that you can find on the program. And this is part of the industry track. They've got not only a, a, a speaker from, from Ulich, who's the chair, but quite notably people from DLR, which is a German aerospace center, and, and speakers from Volkswagen. So, you know, companies are looking already at how are they going to start looking at quantum computing and what it means for their applications. Yeah, without a doubt. Now we should we should differentiate a quantum annealing system to what Google and IBM are building here. Those are quote unquote universal quantum computers, whereas D-Wave has basically a quantum annealer type system, and they are, from from what uh, the experts say, those quantum annealing systems are less flexible, less powerful in in some important ways. So they can't they aren't equivalent in, as far as at the algorithmic level, as far as what what they're able to do, um, because we, as we know, D-Wave has a 2,000 qubit quantum annealing system, and it, it so far hasn't demonstrated a whole lot of uh, 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 capability beyond what supercomputers could do, but uh, they're working sort of on different tracks, and even Google has some experience with that. They've, they've been playing with the, the D-Wave system for a while, but they've decided to go in this other direction. So it's it's a little bit apples and oranges there, but certainly some of that quantum annealing technology and some of the algorithms and software being developed might transfer over as these universal quantum systems uh, come up to speed. Yeah, and this is what we were talking about most recently with regards to some of the other quantum projects that are going on around the world is there are different approaches to this. The idea of a single universal quantum supercomputer, I think, might take a little while to solidify as people explore these different, you know, how much do you really need annealing versus entanglement or some of the other approaches to how you build these. It's an entirely new paradigm, uh, and, and, uh, and we're going to have to see w what applications can actually effectively be run. But, you know, to me, the, the real underpinning here is that we're continuing to talk about quantum with increasing frequency now and uh, to where, you know, it, it looks like next year we could be talking about actual commercial systems. I know D-Wave has sold a few, but the idea of this universal quantum computer that more people will be exploring is, is seeming more and more real. It does, and especially from the IBM side that they're, they're heavily focused on that. And they said on their 
cloud version of this that they've made available basically free for charge they free for free of charge they've already run something like 3000 uh, different uh experiments on or 300,000 different experiments on it uh just from uh, when they announced it earlier this year um so with the 17 qubit or the 16 qubit system they have in there now i think that that might even step up and this could be more interesting work in that area so it does seem to be developing quite rapidly at this point and yeah it's it's getting exciting yeah, and when you talk about this idea of quantum supremacy, we're also talking about who's going to be supreme in offering these systems. Let's take note that Google is now one of the major players here, and this is where the hyperscale user can become the supercomputing vendor by making their own leaps and strides internally. Suddenly, they've surpassed what other people have done by taking it on as a research project, and then suddenly they're a computer vendor. Right, and I think it'll be interesting to see how they how they use that uh, as as a commercial lever i mean right you can easily see them using it to to fuel their own internal needs for especially things like machine learning and things they're obviously interested in but uh they might even expand their horizon beyond that and uh and and fuel other other projects and other areas and, and get them into even other types of businesses so uh, again that's something uh, that's going to be very interesting to watch Okay, Michael, also this week in HPC, and sticking a little bit on the hyperscale side, NVIDIA, of course, made a lot of news during their GPU technology conference, especially talking about the new V100 uh, Tesla GPUs, which were going to be applicable, obviously, in high-performance computing, but also in hyperscale and deep learning AI. Now, if you're going to sell to the hyperscale vendors, you want to have a platform for doing that. They talked about their HGX1 uh, reference platform that was configurable for hyperscale as part of the overall eight-way HGX architecture. But the big news this week in HPC is they've locked down multiple ODM partnerships that'll help them carry these GPUs in volume to the hyperscale providers. Right. They uh, they set up partnerships with Foxconn, Inventec, Quanta, and Wistron, which I think are the four biggest uh, ODMs out there right now and and certainly that's a logical group to put together to to get these systems out there and they're talking about their hgx reference architecture which is the basis of of these things they've already built their hgx1 chassis that uh, microsoft has picked up on and uh facebook and the big basin system is is an hgx architected system as well as nvidia's own dgx1 server that they they've built that appliance they've built for uh for businesses and researchers. So they're trying to, to ODM this architecture and expand that ecosystem to other hyperscale, um, other hyperscale businesses and customers. And uh, it, it's sort of a small news item, but I think it's significant and that it fits into NVIDIA's overall strategy to, to basically push this technology out to the, the cloud providers and uh, where, where a lot of the machine learning um, application work is is going to take place. Yeah, to me, the most interesting thing about the announcement is it's not necessarily who they signed up. I, great, they've gone and gotten the major ODMs. I think that's an expected move. But to think about the downstream consequences of that with regards to uh, early access and also any kind of volume restrictions, because I, I think you look at who's going to tie up early volume on new chip releases. And what you could find is that if there's enough volume there, 
uh, a lot of the early chip volume on on a new processor coming out starts going into the hyperscale segment, right? If if these ODMs get a lot of the early shipments of the Tesla uh, V100s, it and it becomes harder for a, a general purpose HPC shop to get them in the same time frame as you ramp up volume. The secondary effect that has is that the new processors can show up faster in clouds than they do in traditional HPC shops. So anyone who really needs early access for some reason might have to go to a hyperscale provider in order to get it. Right, and we've seen that in at least one other area that the Google Cloud is going to be uh, the first big uh, deployment of the Skylake uh, Xeon processors from Intel. Yep. Um, and I think this this is definitely going to be a be a trend. I mean, that's where there's a lot of the action is now. Even for things that are HPC or tangential to HPC, a lot of the the newer cutting edge processors are going to be cloud first, and then they're going to get into more traditional uh, users users and and supercomputing and uh, mainstream enterprise. So uh, it is seems like cloud and the hyperscale businesses are going to lead the way. So it's not a surprise here. And certainly for NVIDIA, it's not a surprise in that they've got, you know, designs on this hyperscale space, which which dovetails very nicely with the rest of their machine learning strategy. This would be an interesting long-term dynamic to see if this pulls more cloud usage, public cloud usage into high-performance computing. I mean, there's yeah. there's some that's out there, right, in that you know, I might own a car, but I still take public transportation sometimes because there are certain use cases where it makes most sense. And that's the same is true for public cloud and HPC. There are some times when it makes sense, but it, in general, it is not more economical or more convenient on a large scale to move everything to public cloud if I'm an HPC center. Now, this would be an interesting new driver, though. Uh, we've never yeah. talked about as as a driver the idea that the newest technology becomes available first in cloud before I can get access to it otherwise, and and that would be interesting to see how that plays into the HPC market in the long term. Yeah, I mean it's sort of the the tail wagging the dog here, and and it would depend upon sort of what the lag was if you could get a. Uh, you know, this technology, you know, just uh, a month or two in advance of what you might get on a on a supercomputer or a vendor that uh, was building a supercomputer, that probably wouldn't matter so much. But if these lag times got too long, then I think that that would be, you know, a, a strong driver to, to maybe encourage uh, HPC users to start uh, using the cloud more, but you know, well, a, a little bit more usage, right? I could now benchmark my application on the new processors in the cloud to decide whether or not I want to upgrade all of my systems internally. That would become a new part of the equation, right? And and maybe that'll also uh, maybe uh, modify how uh, the HPC market works in a sense maybe they'll have to buy these things uh create a market of their own somehow to to get early access you know maybe uh, these large research organizations these labs will have to go in together and make buys in like hyperscale size allotments to get that sort of early access and and just sort of change the way they do business perhaps It'll be fun to keep watching, Michael. I, I love it when the summer news starts kicking up in advance of the big trade shows with uh, ISC around the corner. 
Yeah, it is, it is getting exciting. I agree. All right, Michael, thanks a lot, and thanks for tuning in. You've been listening to This Week in HPC, brought to you by Intersect 360 Research, actionable market intelligence for high-performance computing. For more information, visit intersect360.com.